You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. And for those of you who have followed our limited series, The Check-In, thank you for tuning in. But this week marks our return to welcoming new guests to the show. First up is Shatora Donovan. Shatora serves as Chief Diversity Officer for the City of Buffalo and is the co-host of the B-Suite podcast, a show centered on what Black people talk about at work. A Buffalo native, Shatora grew up as the youngest child in a large fundamentalist Jehovah's Witness family. And she was so committed to the faith that she wanted to be baptized before the age of 10. So she put in the work to study the doctrine and by her tween years had signed up to preach the gospel in the community for 70 hours a month and then upped it to 90. By the time high school was winding down, Shatora did something that was not encouraged amongst Jehovah's Witnesses. She opted to go to college. Given her decision to buck the system, she had to navigate this new chapter on her own. But Shatora would go on to earn a bachelor's degree, master's and juris doctorate from the University of Buffalo. She started her legal career as an immigration attorney, but her professional journey would eventually lead her to the Buffalo Mayor's Office of Diversity, Opportunity, and Inclusion. And while she was deferential to others during her first year as CDO and took the time to learn, she found her voice and has been speaking truth to power ever since. Now, this shift was not limited to just work. Shatora also left the faith, and ended her marriage. And now she's on an ever-evolving path of self-discovery. So without further ado, here's her story. Shatora, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. We were talking before we pressed record here about how we're just letting our respective hair just (laughs) do its own thing and hoping for the best. Yeah, I was just outside and it got a little wind blown. So this is just what I did today. It's all good. We like for people to show up (laughs) as exactly who they are. So we appreciate it around here. For sure. So looking forward to talking to you. Let's jump right into it. Who is Shatora Donovan? Oh, wow. That's a work in progress. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, But I guess uh, I, I always tell people if I wrote a book, the book would be called I Shouldn't Be Here. Um, So, you know, I grew up in Buffalo. Buffalo is one of the most segregated cities in America. And race was always uh, at the center of uh, my consciousness. So, you know, I wasn't Black enough for the Black people. I wasn't white enough for the white people. And I don't identify in any way as white. I don't have any parent that calls themselves white. I'm just a product of history, right? Um, And so, so um, growing up, uh, you know, just kind of always being aware of my race, of my blackness, made me kind of lean into it even more. Um, as humans, like we're tribal, we we want to belong. But um, my identity, who am I? I think is is kind of really really tied to that. Um, the whole thing about like I shouldn't be here is that, you know, I grew up in a, in a fundamentalist Christian household. So, um, that's really interesting because things like, 
going to college and having a career weren't really encouraged. Well, no, I, I will say it better. They were discouraged. Um, so for me to have become an attorney and now as the chief diversity officer of the city of Buffalo, um, they're all things I shouldn't be. Um, uh, and so that makes it, um, even more phenomenal for me, uh, to have, you know, some kind of, uh, I don't want to say independence, but, um, identity around like what motivates me, what moves me. Um, and so I chose my career based on how I wanted to help the people around me. So again, like really strongly identifying with, with being a black person, with being a black woman, but in my own way, not in the way that like the media wants to portray black people or how other people think black people are, but in my own way, um, I knew I wanted to help people from my city in Buffalo, uh, who didn't have opportunities for some reason, despite not really having the encouragement or the support to seek higher careers and education, I still did. I don't know why I shouldn't be here. So that's how I would answer the question. Who am I? (laughs) So a lot of good stuff there to talk about. I want to start with this this idea of not being black enough for black people and not being you know and being too black for for white people was that solely based on your appearance or were there other factors that were contributing to that as well both so um you know when you're light skinned there's all kinds of things there you know obviously there's light skin privilege and all that stuff but, um, the, you know, there also, it does kind of create like an identity crisis when you are black, but then it, do, and this is not everyone's experience, but, you know, just where I grew up, I, I went to a school that was really racially divided as well. So just to give you an example, there was the black wall and then there was the white wall where kids would stand like in between classes and stuff. But then my friends we had a light skin wall because <laughs> we couldn't really sit. And I'm not kidding. Like, and it was between the two walls. It's really weird. Um, so that's just one example. But also be- because of um, the fact that like we moved out to the suburbs when I was eight or nine. So it was like, you know, it was urban flight of the 90s, like a lot of families did. Um, and I'm just, I'm just kind of like into corny stuff. So, (laughs) you know, like, you know, and I'm, uh, and I've always just been like really analytical growing up, probably because I'm the youngest of way too many kids. So I always just sat back and got to watch and observe everybody else. And that just lended towards me being very extremely like introspective and analytical. So yeah, so all of those things combined are why I think, you know, I wasn't black enough for the black people. Um, yeah. So dealing with that and, and feeling isolated or segregated in some ways, and you mentioned leaning into your blackness more so as a result, did that happen over time? Was it an evolution or from the beginning, once you inherently knew there was this sort of separation with regard to you from the beginning, were you like, no, but I want to be accepted by black people. Or is that something that just developed over time? Um, it's just kind of always been that way because I didn't like, I was like, well, what else am I? 
you know? Um, and I loved, I loved being black. I loved, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be anything else. I didn't want to be Latina. I didn't want to be white, you know? I, so, um, so I remember in, I think it, it was like the eighth grade or maybe the ninth grade, like I was the head of the Black History Month committee. And I, I think I just made the committee up because I don't think we had a Black History Month, anything, you know? Um, so, you know, and I've always loved history. Uh, so understanding the history of, of Black people, I'm like, everybody needs to understand and know this. Yeah, so I, it, I think it was just always that way. I remember <laughs> I was like four and it was, was in our old house and I stood in front of the mirror and I said to my, I think I said to my mom, because I didn't understand ethnicity or culture or anything. I said to my mom, I'm white and you're black because, because my mom is um, brown. She's brown and I'm yellow. And so, <laughs> and so uh, my mom was like, no, we're all black. Like the whole family's black, but you know, there were so many of us, we were every shade of brown. So, um, so I remember kind of like learning about race when I was four from my mom. But other than that, like after that, I was just like, oh, this is just what I am. So, so you answered really my next question about being one of many children. And sometimes in those instances, you have a bunch of siblings that really run the gamut in terms of complexion. And then sometimes you have the one where it's like, okay, where did you come from? Because you look completely different than everybody else. But it sounds like your family was a complete mix. Yeah. So um, especially even when it comes to like hair texture, right? So I have a brother who, my brother is so much darker than me that uh, kids thought that we were, one of us was adopted. Mm. Yeah. Um, But when you like look at our facial features, you can see that we look very similar but yeah, we, we, we run the gamut. Um, and even like, it, it's even silly because like in our family, maybe what we consider dark skin would be light skin in another family. Um, you know, so, you know, it just, uh, we, I'm just, I'm just used to it. I'm, I'm, I'm used to being around people of different shades and knowing that being black is, uh, there's so much diversity in it. So you mentioned having that moment with your mom. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in this question against the backdrop of fundamentalist Christianity, which we could talk about. Were there honest conversations happening in your home about beyond just we're all black around colorism and what you all might have been experiencing out in the world? Like people thinking that you're not even blood relatives. Oof, like not intentionally, no. Like it wasn't like, hey, kids, come around. Let's talk about you know, what it's like to be black today. Um, all of these things just, they just kind of naturally happened. Uh, so (laughs) like, you know, my, my parents, my dad grew up in the seventies in Buffalo and my dad is like five foot five and light skin. And you know what I mean? Like has like a whole wardrobe of leather clothes, like, you know, So, so it's just, it's just like, he, he's just very, um, you know, it was all about looking good and, and, and being smooth and, and all of that stuff. And so, um, so when, so also like growing up in that era, you know, there's also some measure of like self-hatred that was ingrained in people from that generation. Um, I have, you know, just even the way that like, 
my grandmother would treat like my siblings that might have been a little bit darker versus the siblings that might have been a little bit lighter on my dad's side versus my grandma on my mom's side was the opposite. You know, she would treat the kids who were darker a little bit different than she would treat the kids who were lighter. And it, it was just weird. It was, and we would talk about that. We, you know, we would talk about the treatment that um, we experienced like within our own community and specifically about colorism, but also because it was so dangerous in the nineties and my dad had so many girls, he wanted to move us out into a safer neighborhood. And then there was kind of this connection between like black and danger, right? Mm -hmm. Because we moved to a predominantly white neighborhood We actually moved to, when I was growing up, the town was considered the safest town in America for several years in a row, right? And it was literally like 10 miles from, you know, where we were before, 10, maybe, maybe 12 miles, right? So so then it was kind of like a badge of honor to be the only Black family in the neighborhood because you were like, oh, we're safer out here. Uh, but you know, especially when it came to colorism, there wasn't any colorism in my family per se, in my immediate family. It was really like kind of observing how older generations treated people based on, you know, the, the, the brown paper bag test and, and all, all of that stuff. Um, yeah. So I mean, it was wild, wild stuff. So let's talk about the religious piece, because we're definitely going to come back to this race conversation, considering the trajectory of your career, of course. Um, you grew up Jehovah's Witness. Yes, ma'am. Right. So we we have had a Jehovah's a former Jehovah's Witness on this show, um, no which was. Witnesses go yeah, I don't I don't know. I know one current Jehovah's Witness and all the people that I know who subscribe to some form of spirituality and like religion is literally just one. Most are recovering, right? Um, I shouldn't use that word, former. No, I'm recovering, so it's fine. <laughs> so how did that really shape your childhood and your family dynamic? Everything. Mm-hmm. Every single thing. So like very, very pious household growing up and the way that one could excel in my family was to be more pious. And, and the, the term that Jehovah's Witnesses use for piety is spiritual. Mm. And it took me until my late twenties to understand that they were bastardizing the word spirituality. And that's really when I started to wake up. Um, but spirituality in the Jehovah's Witness religion means being uh, like checking boxes. So, you know, how much time do you spend preaching to others? How, you know, how early do you get to the meetings, which is their version, like, that's what they call like their church service. Um, you know, are you doing all of your Bible reading? Are you praying? Like, it's just, it's all check boxes. Um, and however pious you can appear is how they measure your spirituality, right? So it's all about appearances. I don't I I can't say that anymore. So you don't you don't get baptized when you're a baby, but they encourage you to get baptized very young. 
So as the youngest, like I saw my siblings getting baptized and I was like, oh, you know, my sister got baptized when she was 10. I want to be baptized before I'm 10. So I got baptized when I was nine years old, nine years old. Like I'm studying these books and going over these questions with grown men about like sexuality and morality and like just, you know, all all of these things, Um, uh, doctrine, like again, which also lends to probably my headiness, but like, what? I was nine. Like, this is crazy. This is crazy. So um, by the time I was 10, I, uh, I was spending, I think at that point I signed up to spend at least like 70 hours a month preaching to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I was 11, I signed up to spend 90 hours a month preaching to other people. And for, I don't know if I ever really got there, (laughs) if I'm being honest, but like imagine every day after school, all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday, all you do is go out and just preach, knock on people's doors and tell them that the world is going to end. Go ahead. You've got so many questions. I I do. I have many. So I'm trying to understand the studying doctrine at the age of nine, which I have a whole other thought about it being with like grown men. But is this stuff sanitized in a way for a, particularly talking about sexuality for a nine-year-old to even comprehend what's happening? No, no. So, so the same books that my parents read, I read the same services that my parents went to, I went to, and no, none, it's not, no, it's not sanitized for children. So So did you, what were you experiencing? Did you feel like you had a grasp of what you were even learning at that age? I felt like I knew this stuff front, frontward and backwards. You know, I would cry because like if I met somebody who wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, who I thought was a good person, I would cry because God was going to kill them when Armageddon came. And I remember like having teachers that I felt were like, you know, sweet, caring, loving people. And I'm like, but why can't they just serve Jehovah so that they don't die? You know, so like I believed that like this was the only way to live and that motivated me to want to tell everybody else about it. So thinking about that motivation, so you sign up to spread the gospel for these hours, right? But I think children who grow up in deeply religious households often fall into two categories. (laughs) It's those who like, at, at that that age, right? We'll forget, we'll get to the whole self-discovery where you start asking your own questions. But like, it's those who know, like they function in that world and they function in that world well and they believe it and they're passionate about it, but they also know how to turn it off or tone it down when they're in secular environments, i.e. school. And there are others who are so passionate and believe so deeply uh, these tenets and principles that they are pushing that on even adults in their lives, teachers, classmates, et cetera. What category did you fall in, particularly understanding that you felt pain for those that you felt that God was going to smite? Yeah, that's interesting. The first category, for sure. Like, without a doubt. I also just, as a kid, wanted to fit in in school. So, you know, don't nobody want to hear that all day, you know? And you don't even, (laughs) you also don't want to think about that all day. Like, no. Mm -hmm. Nobody can think about that all day. So 
school for me because I spent all my time either in church or preaching or just, you know, reading about it. So school for me was my outlet. So I would like throw myself into school, throw myself into my studies. And, you know, that lended towards me being kind of, you know, a geek or whatever in a, you know, in a good way. Um, but, but yeah, no, I, I would, I could turn it off enough so that I could like build relationships in school. Um, and, and people can get to know me cause I did have other interests. There were other things I wanted to do as a normal child than just mm-hmm. you know, talk about the end of the world. So, but what does preaching the gospel look like when you're 10 or, or 11? Like, are they sending you out with someone who's older are you, you know, we all know what we've seen when people come into the door or, you know, if you're in a, a metropolitan city, they might have the booth set up in, you know, the subway or the train station. But it's usually adults. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a child in the mix. Girl. So what did that look like for you? So for all the Griselda fans out there, you know about the east side of Buffalo. So I was, I don't know, maybe 10 and like on the weekends. During the week, it, uh, in the summer, anytime I wasn't in school, you know, you go, you meet at the Keenum Hall, which is the name of the building, the church building, and then they send you out into the field. And the field, like every congregation has a different territory. And so we were at that point in my life, because we moved around to different congregations in the, in the region a lot. And so at that point in my life, we were in the hood, like our territory was some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city. And maybe that's why I'm a little fearless now, because I would be 11 and 12 to the point where like, they would always send us out in, in large groups. There would be men with us, but like by the time it got, it got to like 11, 12, then it would be like, okay, we got to go. It, you know, when the day got hot, the block got hot. So we, we, we had to get out of there. But yeah, they would send, they would, you always go with a partner. So just like Jesus sent out his disciples two by two, they send us out two by two. And, you know, they kind of, they tell you like what you're, you're distributing that day, like what literature you're distributing that day. And they might even give you like a sample presentation. You know, do you think the life will, you could live a life of happiness or, you know, like just whatever the the intro is that day to give some existential question that, you know, perhaps there's really no real answer to. They kind of tell you what to say, or you just, you get to the point where you just make something up when you're out there. And, and back then, um, I feel like Jehovah's Witnesses really had the monopoly on that, like presenting the question. And now it could be a Scientologist folks who believe in like the sovereign mother and all these things. But back then it was like, if you saw somebody approaching you with literature and a question, you just knew, oh, these are the witnesses at Mm -hmm. at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that though, and and the work that you're doing, did you really enjoy it? Like being a tween, like out there in the hood, asking Uh, people these deep questions? That's a hard question because I didn't know anything else, Delisha. Like, you don't celebrate Christmas. You don't celebrate, you don't celebrate anything. You don't celebrate your birthday, not Mother's Day, not Father's Day, nothing. Right. So and you can't have friends who aren't witnesses. So it's like, well, this is like, it was kind of like a form of 
like recreation in a way. No, I didn't want to do that all the time. I didn't want to be out there like all summer doing that. But at the same time, like I had a big family and we were all there together, like me and all my siblings. Um, and it was like a time like, you know, I got to spend with my mom. So no, but I didn't know. I, I didn't know what the alternative would be. And what's the what's the age range for for you from oldest to youngest, all of your siblings? Um, so there are I have five siblings bet- that are uh, four siblings, five of us all together that are Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'm the youngest. And then the oldest is exactly 10 years older than me. OK, so you had some runway for, for older siblings to kind of go through this, progress into teen years, you know, young adulthood. They all and they all stuck with it growing up or did this, you know, so they all were like, because, you know, generally it's a mixed bag. When you have that many kids, it's some who are like the minute they are old enough to rebel. It's like, I'm done with this, moving on to something else. And it may not even be that they have dug deeply into the actual doctrine and decided they don't they don't agree. It could just be this is so oppressive that I'm going to act out. But it sounds like your family full stop was committed to this. Still is. Full stop. Full stop. I'm an anomaly. Okay. And we're going to talk about that anomaly because I know what it means when you make a different choice as a Jehovah's Witness. So I definitely want to get into that. But how old were you? You said you were in your late 20s when you... Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So we'll put a pin in that for now. But thinking about what you said about like growing up in this kind of environment, there's no talk about education and career and the way you might have that conversation in a more traditional, um, traditionally suburban family and household. So how did you really come to this realization that like, okay, I'm, I'm committed to the faith, but also I'm thinking about academics and my career. How did that happen? (laughs) Um, so another factor of the religion is, you're supposed to only marry within the faith. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ain't, no, ain't nobody going to take care of me. So I'm going to take care of myself, you know? Um, so I, uh, that, you know, my dad in that way, of very, very overprotective in a nice, the nicest way I can say it, father. But he was, he, he at a certain point, I think like encouraged us to go to college because he saw the the benefits of it probably because he didn't go to college. He saw that, you know, um, it would be good. So my parents didn't, even though the religion strictly would say things like you should not go to, you should go to like trade school or something like that. So, you know, my parents were like, and I got a full scholarship to, uh, I got a full academic scholarship to the college across the street. So it was like really hard to say no. Um, and I was just a good kid. Like, honestly, I was just kind of boring. Um, I wrote poetry and read books like that was it. I didn't really want to be fast. So um, as as the grown folks would say. <laughs> so it was it was kind of hard for my parents to say no. Um, also, because like I knew my parents weren't really going to financially support me either. And they didn't particularly want to. So um, I, I, I don't know. I just, I think I was smart. I was capable and it was just like, go ahead and, and go to college. Now, grad school and law school were a different thing. So when I realized I wanted to go to grad school, first I tried to move to Atlanta and 
couldn't. I was like, I'm back. So I came back and my rule was for myself, if I'm living in Buffalo, <laughs> I'm going to be in school. Like, I'm So not- what drove you, what drove you out of Atlanta? It just wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't my scene. Like Atlanta's very um, entertainment-y and, um, and like, I just, it, like, I remember one of the first nights I went and like hung out with friends, a girl looked at me and was like, so who are you here for? Like a guy, like which guy are you here to like bag? And I was just like, nobody think about these dudes. Like, what are you talking about? You know? So I was just like, it just, I was just like kind of vibing different than Atlanta was vibing with me and the traffic, the traffic kind of like <laughs> the traffic kind of drove me out. No pun intended. Reason number one, why, why <laughs> I will never live in Atlanta. DeMarcus, our producer is a huge proponent of living in Atlanta. I am not. So I fully understand. <laughs> it wasn't my thing. It wasn't my thing. So um, when I came, my, when I was like, okay, I'm just after like six months or less, I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm going back to Buffalo so I can go back to school. Um, so, but I knew I couldn't go back to school and be living in my parents' house. Like they weren't going to support that. So I had to move out first and you know what I mean? So, um, so that's how I made all that happen. So you decided to go to grad school mm-hmm. to focus and study on what? I started with social work because mm-hmm. even though I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer, I was like, I, I, when I learned in college what lawyers really do, I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Um, so I started off um, in the social work program. If I, I, I worked as a social worker for a little bit. And if I'm just being honest, like they kept having rolling deadlines. So I was like, okay, they'll take my application. So I'll, I'll apply. And then when I was in my first semester of social work school, I was like, like, I love what they do, but it ain't for me, like this one-on-one stuff. So when I realized I could affect policy, change policy, all of that, I was like, oh, I can marry the two and, um, and, you know, and help change systems, which is actually what I wrote my personal statement on for law school was changing systems. Mm, okay. So going into law school as someone who has been to law school, I know like it, it can be incredibly jarring, right. For, for a lot of people, because you go in and it's often the first time where you realize everybody in the room is driven. Everybody in the room, you know, has high career aspirations really, you know, high achievers, differing opinions, maybe different career tracks, but really bringing that, that level of energy. Um, did you have that experience? And if so, did it, did it reinforce your capability and your level of intelligence or have you questioned it? Oh, I would say I questioned my intelligence for sure. Like I didn't even, I didn't even know for like the first couple of weeks of law school, um, like how to really uh, take notes and, <laughs> and outline and all that stuff. Like I, I didn't even know, like no, nobody told me. I'm like, what? Everybody's like, what they writing? <laughs> I'm like, I did the reading, but what, what are y'all writing? Like what, you know? So, um, so definitely had me uh, question my intelligence. I, you know, every few weeks considered dropping out for a number of reasons. Like I felt like I was being disloyal to God I had no support, none. And, you know, I, like you said, everybody around you is like, they're intense. It's very intense. So what it actually did was like, it drove me 
to work harder. Mm-hmm. When, what And this is what I explain to everybody. Like in college, there's always a break, right? You go a few weeks and then there's some kind of a break. You do a semester, you get a like three weeks off. That does not exist in law school. And what drove me more than anything to stay in law school was because I didn't want my family or anybody else to say, we knew you couldn't do it. Mm. So I was like, I'm going to do it. I got to do it. It's just me. And I'm just going to grind this out. So yeah, I mean, question my intelligence, my capacity, everything. But yeah. Were were you still preaching the gospel during this time? <laughs> um. So yeah, like I, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be. I was like, I put my bed in. Like, can I get a break for a few years? Um, but you, but you, 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 I listen, I like my mom, like my mom pulls up. Like if, if, if you, if you, if you don't show up, she going to come to your house. Mm. Like, this is how intense it, like it was in my household and my family. So, you know, I still had to, I still had to save face. I still had to show up. Um, and I did. And, and I was so busy it's not even like I was like questioning the religion yet at this point, but it was all, it it was all social pressure for me at this point. It wasn't like, yeah, the end is coming. You know, I'm so afraid that if I'm not in the right place at the right time, you know, Jesus is going to judge me. It wasn't even like that. I was just like, it just, the social pressure tells me I have to do this. So um, I got to do it. So having been through the law school experience, I'm trying to fathom having to maintain a full course load everything that comes with that. And then, you know, as you progress through your career, it's recruiting season. If you're trying to get on a journal, the clinics, the, all of it and having organized religion or the hall telling me or my own family that I have to be somewhere for a considerable amount of time each week. Like I can't even, I can't fathom that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how I did it. I also worked at one point I was working three jobs, um, or maybe two jobs and an internship. Um, and trying to network, being a, I was the first student member of our minority bar association. Um, so yeah, I don't know how I did it. I don't know, <laughs> but. And when did career choices for you really crystallize where you said, okay, this is what I want to do for sure with my law career. Um, I, when, when I was in law school, so I got a job working as a graduate assistant in uh, the immigration department. Mm. So uh, that was um, the first time I had a boss who actually taught me, like, you know, raised me up to, to do something. So I, I, that was like my first experience as being a professional, like these are standard operating procedures. This is the law. This is how we apply it. This is how, like, you know, he would walk you through step by step of how to be a lawyer. Um, and more than what fascinated me about immigration was that the body of law is just as wide and as deep as the entire body of law out there, because there's business law, family law, criminal law, um, you know, refugees, asylees, like there's all these different parts to immigration that it was highly intellectual and fascinating. Um, and so it kind of like hit every, every mark for me. 
Mm. So we know that there are multiple facets of, of immigration. You know, there's the corporate and sort of business side. And then there are those who are underserved and often have difficulty finding the appropriate representation when those issues arise. And it sounds like you've worked based on your bio on both sides, but really have a heart for that latter category. Um, And we all know like lawyers can affect change and people approach the profession from a lot of different ways. But often those who choose fields from a place of passion to really help people, the salary doesn't often match. So was that ever a consideration for you? Like, okay, this is what I'm passionate about. This is how I want to use my degree. But I have classmates and colleagues who are really getting to the money (laughs) as a lawyer. Did you ever have that moment um, or like a crossroads? Yeah. um, So my third year, I had to decide between taking a clerkship at like a mid-sized law firm and staying in the immigration department. Mm. And the thing is, (laughs) you know, there's no job after law school if you stay in the immigration department. Um, But there's a job after law school if you go to the law firm. I chose to stay in the immigration department. Um, And, and, you know, I, I, the, listen, I went to law school to have a better life. Mm -hmm. I did. And by better life, I mean to make money, right? I'm not afraid of money. I don't think people who make money are intrinsically bad, like none of that. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I wanted to make a lot of money and I knew that I was worthy of making a lot of money. But guess what? When I graduated in 2012, there were people from 2010 who still didn't have jobs yet because of the financial crisis. So there was just like this backlog of, of opportunities that were even available. So, um, you know, so that being said, money, money being something that meant a lot to me, what meant more to me than the money was being able to impact the community. Like, so I, I tried to work for some, um, some nonprofits when I first got out and that, uh, whatever it, the opportunities didn't come through fast enough. And my former boss at UB came to me and said, will you help me run my private practice on the side? And I was like, bet, like, that's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I ended up at like 26, man, starting a law firm, which is insane. Um, and I had clients because of my former boss, Oscar, I had clients from day one. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you, I didn't know what imposter syndrome was back then, but boy, oh boy, did I, I was crushed by imposter syndrome. I had people in court, in court, you know, they would come to me and be like, will you, um, so I had to represent this one guy in criminal court. So he didn't, he didn't get to removal proceedings, right? I'm 26 and a half and nobody helped me. I did my research. I did what I did. And, you know, I had other lawyers, seasoned lawyers coming up to me. Oh, I have this client. He's from this country and he's going through criminal issues. Will you help me? And I still thought I didn't, I wasn't good enough. Like, you know, and, and so that followed me the entire time I practiced. 
the entire time. There was never a time I did a, a petition, an application, represented somebody in court that I didn't feel like I was going to destroy this person's life. It crushed me. Like I couldn't go out of town and and like not have my brain just constantly worrying about did I check the right check the right box on that form? Did I review that form enough? Am I going to get sued? So, anyways, um, this is not the question you asked me, but yeah, I I loved helping people too much because I couldn't turn it off. And so um, it got to the point where I was becoming very well known in the um, the Spanish speaking community. Uh, and these people were always in removal proceedings. And I would go and like, I would go to their house. I spoke broken Spanish and that meant more to them than if I were a man or had been practicing for decades. And so I would go and I would go to their house and I would meet their pregnant wife and their kids would come and hug me. And then I would come home and I'll be like, this is all on you. Mm-hmm. This is all on you. And if you don't do this right, you're going to ruin an entire family. Um, nobody told me to put that much pressure on myself, <laughs> but I did. And I couldn't handle it. I'm going to be honest. I couldn't handle it. And so and, I, go, ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And and I, even though you said, oh, this is not the question you asked, this is great. And the, the reason being is having been in solo practice as well, so much of what you said resonates with me. I know it resonates with a lot of young, particularly Black female lawyers or just entrepreneurs in general, right? And what I what I had found when I started having meetings with like white male lawyers, just to like just networking meetings, and a lot a lot of them were re- reaching out to me, which was shocking, right? But they were like, "Oh, let's go for a coffee and whatever," and their practices would be growing at a clip. I mean, just they're, they're adding new practice areas and doing all these things. And I'm like thinking about the research that I do every time a new matter walks through my door and how much time I spend with these clients. And then let's not even get into like setting your rates. And because of that imposter syndrome, not feeling like, I don't know how much I should charge this person. I don't want to overcharge them because this is my first time doing this. There are many different tapes that are playing in your head at the same time, but I would have these conversations and I'm like, well, you, you're now doing this practice here. Like, how did you learn? They're like, I'm just figuring it out. I'm just figuring it out. I just, I just see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, it's a learning experience and I will do better the next time. So it's almost like viewing clients as just that, like a commodity. If it doesn't work out for them, it doesn't work out for them. And I learned on their dime. I now have been practicing law for 11 years. I've done out, you know, external counsel. I've been in house. I have never mastered that. So. I understand and I relate to what you're saying in that separating it and being like, this is just a job, particularly in an era where people's futures are hanging in the balance and they're looking at you like you can save them. Yeah. I, I, people who are able to cope with that, especially early in their career, kudos to them. I feel like they have been coached or mentored Mm -hmm. because the one thing I'll tell you is my boss told me how to set my rates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that was one thing he like there were certain things that I was able to do from the beginning that I would not have done if he didn't coach me. He told me how to set the rates. He told me never take um, uh, a consultation without getting your fee first. Um, Your time is your money. Um, All of that. And and that's what that's how I ate every month. If 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 he at least didn't coach me in those ways. 
I needed a little bit more coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So how when how long did you do that before you made the decision? Like, okay, I, I'm flaming out here. I, I I'm burning out. I can't do this anymore. Three years. Um, it was like okay, I can either hire someone or I can get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to. I was like, I don't want to be responsible for my clients and somebody else. So so I was like, I'm gonna just go find a job. And mm-hmm. I, I went and found a job. So what did that feel like for you? Because you know, it's interesting that people can go work at a law firm and either be on the partner track there and then, or decide to go in-house. But I feel often with solo lawyers, this is expectation. Like when you get into solo practice, you're going to grow that practice into something and that's just what you do. Um, And I've found that talking to colleagues that when they make a choice to like take that shingle down and go find a job, even if it's like the healthiest choice for them, Oftentimes people have a fear of perception. Like are people going to think I failed or, you know, I gave up. Did you, did you have any of that internal dialogue happening? Yeah. I felt like a failure. I felt like, you know, the same stuff that's going through your head in the first year of law school, that was going through my head, you know, in my third year of practice, like, oh my God, you know, I failed. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't cut the mustard. It wasn't for me. You know what I mean? Um, but now, you know, I'm, nine years out and I got friends who are like, man, you made the right choice. You got out. I'm jealous. You know, you could sleep at night. You don't have to worry about billable hours and all of that stuff. Um, so, so there's, I don't think there's enough perspective on like, just like there's diversity in how to be black, there's diversity in how to be an attorney, um, and be successful Mm -hmm. and be successful at it. Um, so yeah, definitely like struggled. I, sometimes I still do, you know, cause here's the other thing. Attorneys are jerks. So, you know, people will say stuff like, you know, oh, I would never stop practicing, you know? Well, you're passive aggressive. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people say that to me. Um, okay. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad for you, but everybody know who I am. Don't nobody know who you are. So. <laughs> it is what it is. Like we use our law degree for different things. But but I have that confidence now because no, I might not practice and I might not be doing heady legal work all day, every day, but I definitely use my powers for good. And I, I, my conscience is clean. So I feel good about it now. So how does your journey professionally lead you to working for the city of Buffalo? I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. Basically, um, I started my first job out of law school. I mean, out of practice was working for the law school. Um, and, and so I did that. Um, and then I was like, okay, I don't really like higher ed. These politics are wild, wild politics in higher ed. Um, and and uh, so so I left there. And also, you know, the whole like microaggressions and, and all of that stuff. So then I thought, oh, I'm going to go run nonprofits. This is kind of similar politics. Um, so one thing that I, I learned was because I, I kept getting into these jobs where I was unhappy and I'm not one to, to phone it in. So I had to make a choice one day when I had been phoning it in for quite some time. And I said, you can, you can grow or you can die. So um, I decided that no matter where I was going to work, no matter who I was going to work for, whether I liked her or not, and I've worked 
for a number of women literally named Karen. <laughs> literally named Karen. That's all I'll say about that. But I, I said, it's about you. Your job is about you. Nobody forced you to take this job. Nobody's forcing you to keep this job. But you need this job. So let's make the best of it. So everywhere I went, I made helping my people my priority. So one job I had, um, I was a director at a museum. And I was, I looked around and this museum was in Martin Luther, is in Martin Luther King Jr. Park. And I see no black people in this museum ever. But when I would ride up to work, I would see Mercedes and Range Rovers and minivans in the parking lot. So, you know, the the moms would be coming from the suburbs to bring their kids in and then they would scurry them out, you know. Uh, but the people from the neighborhood weren't enjoying it. So I started a program called the Neighbor Pass and I l- restricted it to area codes so that there was no financial restrictions on it. There was no race restriction, no other social restriction. It was all geographic. Um, but the neighbor, but if you look at the zip codes, that gives you the exact demographic that you want, right? Um, but benign on its face, right? So uh, so I started that program and increased visitorship of folks in those zip codes, namely Black people, by like 200% mm. in a couple, in, in, in like three months. It was, it was so simple, it was silly. And um, ended up, having a meeting with the mayor about like the projects that I was doing um, at the museum. Of course, you know, they want to take me and show me off to the black mayor. Look, we got one of you. Um, and so uh, we, so we, we made that presentation to the mayor. And then later on, I think I had applied to a job at city hall and that triggered everybody to know like, Oh, she wants to move. So um, after that, I kept, I was just courted by City Hall for a couple different jobs. I turned City Hall down twice. So that's a lesson in and of itself. Um, even though I wanted out, I, it had to be right. Um, and then finally, they came back, you know, with the godfather of all offers, which was uh, chief diversity officer of the city of Buffalo. And I was like, yeah, I think I can do that. That's kind of, that's kind of a game changer. So, so that's how I got here. Did you bring a different energy? Because that's a big job. Did you? But did you bring a different energy to that than you did, say, when you started your legal career? Like, did the imposter syndrome at that point fall away or what? So, yes. So I grew up a lot over those years and I went through a lot. So um, I had to learn about passive aggression in the workplace. I had to learn about unspoken rule books. I had to learn that, you know, just because you work hard don't mean people got to like you. Um, I had to learn a lot of those lessons and that helped me a lot. So like the attitude that I went into City Hall with was, I'm going to just chill. I'm going to just chill and get to know as many people as I can. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to, you know, right generational wrongs on day one. Like literally, I was just like, I'm just having coffee with people. I'm going to send little notes. Um, Like, I'm going to just fall back. Because, mind you, like, 
it's one thing going into an organization and, you know, people have been there five years or, you know, maybe 10, but it's another when you go into an organization that's male dominated, very diverse. So you got white men, black men, Latinos, women, a lot of women too, but it's intimidating and you need to have credibility. And so I had to build my credibility. Otherwise it's like, you know, a, a giant swatting a fly. Um, so I was very deferential to people who had been there 20 plus years. Like, this is crazy. And by the way, you know, we're not talking about a $10 million organization or even a law school, which is very niche. We're talking about running an entire city. So these right. people are just powerful. Even if they're not wielding it, they do own this power. Yeah. So, so I fell back. I took a step back and I was like, let me just learn about this organization. And then over time, because of the credibility I built, people pulled me in. So I didn't Mm. push my way in. I was pulled in. And that's a lot easier. um, That's a lot easier of a way to enter into an organization than, than the ways I believe or the ways I had done it in the past. And what does the role of a chief diversity officer look like for a city? I think many of us understand what that means for a corporation, but what does it look like for a city and particularly a city with a history of racial division? Um, it depends on who's in the job mm. uh, and it depends on who your boss is. So um, th- there's like no, there's, there's no job description you could write for my job that would get you somebody who's willing to do the stuff I'm willing to do. <laughs> like you just kind of like, kind of, it, it's just kind of got to make it self work. So um, in a city, it's everything that you do in a corporation, which is like, you look at the diversity of your workforce. You, you look at the bias within the workforce. Um, all of that stuff uh, and and maybe even like the external interactions and all that you so so you have to kind of mitigate all of those elements, but also it's police reform mm. a little a little something a little ditty that got thrown on my desk um it's a small small little thing light work <laughs> slight work you know it's being the liaison to the the activist community um it is being uh, so i have i have a, a lot of history in fundraising so like i know how to cultivate fund I, I know how to cultivate high net worth people um that doesn't intimidate me actually i love it cuz they're just regular people and when you treat them like regular people they love that too so um it's it's negotiating with you know, large corporations on community benefits. Uh, it, it like, it's, it's the most awesome job in the world. Like, honestly, it really is. And, and because my boss believes so, uh, innately in this stuff, I get pulled in and asked to do a lot, um, a lot more than maybe if I had a different boss. So I'm thinking about this and the fact that your eyes just lit up and you said that, you know, it's the best job in the world. I'm also thinking about it within the context of just what we've experienced as a country in the last, you know, year, 13, 14 months, and so much focus on social justice, so much focus on police brutality, 
the imagery that we've seen, the videos, the funerals that have, that have made news, all of that. And now you serving in this role, but also being this liaison to activists and also serving in this role as a Black woman. So I would think that that comes with expectations from the community as well about affecting change. Mm-hmm. And this idea, whether it's spoken or unspoken, that you're in this job, sister, and things should be moving a lot more quickly with regard to change in this city. Can you be more militant? Why aren't things, because you mentioned that you jumped in and you just learned and you were deferential. Have you experienced that? And how have you managed what is probably some unrealistic expectations on either side of the fence, within 100%. the role for people from outside? hundred percent. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it's never enough. It's never fast enough. Um, so, so I, I study human behavior just like, you know, like, you know, oh, I'm going to read before I go to sleep. I'm, I'm going to read some Nietzsche. Like, you know what I mean? I, I, I love understanding what makes humans work because I love humans. I really do. Like, I love people. Um, and, and we're fascinating. And so the, the, the civil unrest that happened last year to me was a blessing because mm-hmm. it, it, it brought to light all of the things that like, that we were afraid to talk about a year ago, two years ago. Are you kidding me? The stuff I've been able to say in the last year, I would have never been able to say two years ago. I, I would, I would have been ostracized. Right. So, um, so my perspective is that we're at an inflection point and like we have such an awesome opportunity. So, so it is hard, like, the, yes, it's difficult to manage expectations, but everybody has a role. And so what I remind people is what my role is. So if people are asking me to act or do something that is outside of my role, I quickly remind them that I am just a part of a larger system that's in place. And by system, I don't mean it in the systemic racism kind of way. I mean it in the change maker kind of way. So like, I wish, like we have an entire community that needs to press for change. And it is not just the people in perceived power that are responsible for making that change. Um, So I do everything I can do from from where I sit to to make that change, um, and it it also like it evol- if you if you look at evolution like we don't go from being like single celled mitochondria to you know you know to walking upright in a day like that takes millions and millions of years we didn't we didn't get to this point overnight so so we have to first of all like like manage our expectations but. Second of all, un, like stop expecting one person to be your solution. Like that's kind of my gospel. Um, that's what I talk about on my podcast a lot, whether it's directly or indirectly. Um, but like, let's start having families again. Let's start mm-hmm. having babies again. Let's be in control of our money. Like all of those things are way more are way more influential than what one man or one woman can do because they're elected. To a position. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question, but it does. It does. 
And you you mentioned like being able to say things you know in the in the last year that you might not have been able to say before, right? And what I want to know about that is to the extent you can talk about it, how other black people who work in government responded to that. Because we all know a lot of those people, to your point, have been in those jobs for decades. They're happy to have it. They're happy for the salary. They told the line. They're not interested in ruffling feathers. Like status quo is cool. And it, it on the surface, it may look like they're all for change, but some of that's performative. So when someone like you comes in and is speaking truth to power, once you've built that, that capital to be able to do it, and once sort of the climate allows for it, sometimes your own folks are not allies in, in that environment. Did you experience that? No. Really? No. No, it was, ooh, I cried just thinking about it. It was, it was a beautiful, Delisha, I had, I had grown men call me crying. Mm. Like, first of all, do you know how difficult that is for a Black man to do? Right. Second of all, like, the pain, the pain that people felt so acutely during that time, that helplessness that people felt, like, that was so real. That was so real for everybody. and. People wanted to see more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I think um, what what this allowed people to see was because I hadn't been at City Hall very long before all this happened. I was only there, you know, just a little over a year when COVID hit. And so people didn't really know me, know me. And what they learned, like they 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 got to see what I was really made of. And and I think that made them that made them trust me even more. Um, so, so I, I, in my workplace did not experience that whatsoever. It brought all of us closer than ever. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I think is the exception rather than the rule. I do think we're writing ourselves in a lot of ways and people do feel empowered um, to express vulnerability, outrage, their their real opinions in a lot of ways. I think those conversations are happening a lot more frequently and a lot more candidly. I also acknowledge that we've got a long way to go, uh, a lot of us. So um, the fact that you had that experience and could create that space for people where they felt like they could put their humanity on display with you and support you in the work that you're doing, I think is is commendable for an organization and a community, particularly of Black Black city workers, like people who work for a city to function like that, I think is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where in this professional journey, going back to now the religious piece, did you have an awakening? I'll call it that, where things shifted for you. When did this happen? When I learned the difference. When when I, I never felt spiritual. Mm. And like we threw this term out, spirituality, we throw this term out all the time. What is spirituality? Spirituality is, you know, going to all the meetings and spirituality is spending X amount of hours in what they call the field ministry, but proselytizing. Um, and I was just like, but y'all kind of still kind of like, I don't like how y'all treat each other. You know, I didn't feel like this. I didn't feel lighter. I felt heavier. Mm. And I, I didn't have a lot of friends, um, you know, the, the, I hate to, I hate to say it like this, but like the women were just catty. Um, and I was married. So, you know, I would have to be, yeah. So I would have to be around. Okay. 
So you dropped that all late in the interview. Okay, got it. Well, I I I was married um, in the religion, and so I would have to like be around the wives and like the conversations would just like I would just be like y'all don't like y'all don't understand like there's a war going on in Yemen, and you mad that like she wore a dress that you wore or you know what I mean or like she you know you had a party and she didn't come when you went like I just didn't care like I I literally just didn't care um I didn't feel like people were were acting based on principle I felt like people were acting based on social cues Mm. so there was just like I I just can't I, I don't know why but I just can't not be what I say I am so I'm not going to say I am something. I'm not going to say I do something if I do not do it. And I just had this dissonance between reality and the BS. And so then I started to like, because you're not supposed to do this. I started to open myself up to what spirituality really is because I was tired of feeling heavy all the time. Um, and when I realized, when I understood that spirituality is a deeply personal experience that no one externally can judge you for, except for perhaps what you manifest, right? So what you are, how you show love and all that stuff. When So then I kind of got into this, this deep dive about love. Um, and when I realized that, like, I don't know if I've ever felt love before and not in the romantic sense, um, there's a lot of ways to feel love. And I did not feel it around me. Mm. Not, not from, not from my, my family of origin, not from my husband and not from my religion. And this is all I knew. Uh, and so that, that was when the awakening started to happen. Um, so that was a, that, that was like an earth shaking kind of thing, because then I had to realize that I was stifling my potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but just along with the awakening, guys, just there is like a great XJW community on YouTube. And so like, like just the tomfoolery, you just see like there's so many lies and misrepresentations and all of that stuff. Um, and then and then what really kind of set me over the edge was that there is a lot of um, child sexual abuse in the organization and the the rhetoric about the Catholics and how despicable, you know, the Catholic church is when something just as bad, if not worse, if not worse, because it's a centralized cover-up is happening in the JW world, just kind of like through me. And I remember mm-hmm. I, I asked my ex, like, what do you think about this? And, you know, he gave some company line answer. And I was like, so what would you say if I told you it was Catholics? And like, you, you know, I'm like, right. So you've got two standards. Mm. Right. So, so, um, so yeah, so that, that was kind of how the awakening started to happen. And when did you make the decision to walk away? Well, that I have to say for my last question. <laughs> okay. So great. Let's, let's, the marriage is still throwing me by the way. Cause you literally just. I'm divorced. Oh, clearly. Right. Yeah. But it's yeah. You slid that in the conversation. So I, we can talk about that on a follow-up interview. I'll I'll say this. I'll say this about the marriage. Um, I don't think, 
I don't think that if I didn't get married, I would have awakened. I don't know when I would have awakened, but I feel like because I got married and I realized that even in marriage, like you can still be uncovered. You can Mm -hmm. still be unprotected if you're not in the right place. Like I just had to learn that lesson because growing up, it was always like my sisters got married 20, 20, 22, 24, right? So when I got married, I was already like 28, almost 29. So I was already pushing it. And and I just, I really kind of did it like perfunctory because um, it was like, you know, you got to do it. And I'm like, well, okay, well, let's do this. You want to marry me? Somebody want to marry me? Okay, good for me. But um, but I needed that. I I needed that experience to to fully understand like my responsibility to myself. Mm, understood. So let's just go there. Describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. So sitting in church, and I was already like oh, coming, uh, waking up, and I'm sitting next to my husband. And the man, they're called elders. So this is like the highest position you can get in the church. And he makes a joke. And he says, you know what they say about the woman with the black eye. What did she say this time? And it was in that moment that I realized I was not safe in this organization. I was not safe as a little girl. And I was not safe as a married woman. I was not safe in this organization. And that's when I realized I was done. I couldn't even, I, I, I couldn't even look at that man ever again. So I was in my seat and I had a panic attack because it triggered some things from my childhood that deeply impact my very fabric. And I was, I went to the, I tried to compose myself, went to the bathroom, lost it. I come back whenever, 20, 30 minutes later and I sit down and um, these two women in front of me like after everything, after the service is over, they turn around and they say to me, oh, are you okay? And I was just like, I was like, I'm not getting into it with them. So I just said, well, you heard what he said. Oh, that, well, you know, that was funny. Oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, after he told that joke, people laugh. Everybody mm. laughed. Cause I guess it doesn't matter what you say. If you're up on that stage, it's supposed to be funny. Like you can't question, you can't question anything. Right. So it was, so, so that was another thing that like triggered me even more. And then these two women, you know, they, they defended it, but not only did they defend it, they said, um, well, sometimes a woman does need to be hit. Mm. And I said, well, you have fun. Cause if my husband hit me, I'm going to jail. Like they taking me away. Like, cause that's, that's just it. Like, I don't, I'm like, I don't know where I am, but I tell you where I don't belong mm-hmm. is here. So in that moment, I had, I had to decide, like, what do I want for my future? And it wasn't that. It wasn't that. And that meant a lot. That meant, as, as you know, like, I had, to, uh, I had to make decisions on, like, okay, is it, is it me or my family? Mm-hmm. Is it me or my marriage? Is it me or my future? Like, it, I had to make these decisions and, and obviously they, they didn't happen overnight. Um, but yeah, then, you know, I, so I stopped going to services and when you stop going, they come and they find you. Yes. And 
so so they they came and I, you know they asked me what happened and I was very candid very open and you know I'm crying and one one of them says to me well do you think if you were spiritually stronger you would have had that reaction and I want to be like can you get out of my house mm-hmm. can you please get out of my house and and so that whole awareness of like what spirituality really is their definition of spiritually stronger is piety. It's what are your, what are, you know, what does your report card look like? Um, and yeah, my report card, according to them, was trash, but my spirituality was strengthening. Mm-hmm. And my relationship with God was developing because I didn't have one before. And that's what they didn't know. So I wasn't here for their BS. And what happened was I said something about what I thought spirituality really was. And I saw his, one of, one of the elders entire demeanor, like they were very compassionate and, you know, cause they want to love bomb you to come back. But when I said something questioning the doctrine, his, he said, so what are you trying to say? Mm. And I knew, I, I knew what that meant. So I was like, you know what? I'm, I just want you to leave. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just walk this back and, oh no, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just, whatever. I don't even know what I said. It doesn't matter, but yeah. So, um, anyways, yeah, that I think for me, I, I feel like I've gotten a second life (laughs) and in that time, um, I feel like my whole life has changed. And it was after that a week before we went on full lockdown, my husband moved out. Mm. So this is like recent. This is recent. This is recent. Um, A week before full lockdown. So everything, like my whole, the whole trajectory of my life has shifted since then. Um, And so like, I truly believe that, you know, God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, the higher power that I believe exists um, was definitely directing me. And I just had to be, I had to make an extraordinary decision um, and, and one that, that took a measure of courage. And I did. So when you extrapolate or extract yourself from that religious stronghold and you're married in the faith, we all know relationships are complicated and, and often it's not an, an immediate realization. You don't immediately come to the point where you're like, okay, this is not going to work. We're going to split up. But given that, the circumstances under which you were operating, knowing you didn't want to be involved in this religion anymore and this person's in the faith, was it like an immediate knowing like, okay, well, I guess we're just going to split up then because you're on a different path or was that follow more, did that follow more of a traditional path of uncoupling? Yeah. It followed a more traditional path of uncoupling um, because it wasn't like, in all honesty, it wasn't just the religion the religion was just a factor, but he was willing to stay with me even if I weren't in the religion. Um, there were other issues in the relationship that didn't make it a sustainable situation. Mm. And where do things stand with your family? Um, you know, I love I I love the heck out of my family, um, and I love them from here, and they're over there. Uh, so. I, I, I don't right now have, um, a close relationship with my parents. 
um, the last, you know, because they have to try to get me back into that religion. Like it's kind of their job as good Christians to make, you know, to make that something that they put in front of me over and over and over again. Mm -mm. No, I'm not doing that. But one of the things I said to my father was, you made a choice in 1974 when you were 21 years old. You know, I'm 35. And, uh, (laughs) and, you know, I don't, I don't really see the purpose of me, you know, like continuing in a decision that you made as a young man. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, but Like, if that's a choice that you make for your life, I'll support you. All I ask is that you support, that that you accept, not even support, just accept the choice that I've made for my life. That's all I ask. That's asking a lot. That's asking a lot for them. I I don't know if that's possible. Right, because from what I know, when you walk away, they don't speak to you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're a relative. Like, if you're not a part of the faith, that's it. We can't be in the same room. I don't want to be seen with you. I don't want to have any interaction. That's correct. So, you know, I don't know if I, so it's funny, right? Like if there's like no formal, they like, they read an announcement from stage and they say like, you know, they would say Shatori Donovan's no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, if a final decision were made, I don't know if that's happened. Mm. And so I think technically based on these this made up set of rules like they can still talk to me because you haven't been disfellowshipped is that what they call it yes formally okay yeah so um yeah so 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 I think technically they can still talk to me but I want I I deserve unconditional love absolutely so so if if you can talk if you if you love me enough today to talk to me and and nothing about me has changed except for some kind of label that's been placed on me by a bunch of men who don't know me. That's not unconditional love. And so so I've made the decision to make the make the choice easy for them. And and so I stay at a distance. Mm. Wow. I just told the whole world. All you did. <laughs> but it's great. That's what the show is about. Complete candor. Um, I'm, I'm always interested to know whether when, when people come on here and they share so much about their lives, if the people that they're talking about ever listen. I'm, I'm always curious if they've heard the episode and, and what they think about it. But um, one of the things that we try to make the show a vehicle for is speaking your truth. And that's, that truth may be uncomfortable for the people who reared you or who you are biologically connected to, or who just have different, care about you, but have different views. And I think culturally, uh, we're finding, just like we're finding the ability to speak truth to power, I think within Black familial units, we're moving to a a space where people feel more comfortable telling the truth. And for us to really live from a place of wholeness, and fulfill our potential and walk in purpose, that is absolutely necessary. It's we walk around with all these weights on us and bridled in so many ways. And there's a price to pay when you do it, when there are these factors at play. Uh, religion, if speaking your truth involves uncovering abuse or the ways in which there was dysfunction in your family, that is frowned upon. 
But at the end of the day, nobody is coming to save us as individuals and you have to save yourself. And if saving yourself means this is my reality and I'm sharing it. And if you can accept me for walking in my reality and how I see the world, then there needs to be boundaries between me and you. Then that's just what it's got to be. It doesn't mean that that's not painful and it doesn't mean that it's not hard, but I'm going to be for personal health and wealth in every form all day before I'm for pleasing anybody and even the people that I really care about. You know, I know people who refuse to, to see the truth of their life. I know people mm-hmm. in my family who do that and they're victims. Everybody is doing something to them. I tell you something right now. I ain't nobody's victim. Mm-hmm. I'm nobody's victim. I say all the time and I don't know if I should be saying this, but like if I die tomorrow, I die happy. Mm-hmm. I die happy because I got to walk in my truth. Even if it was for one day, one day, I got to walk in my truth about everything, about absolutely everything. And, you know, because of the lightness that I feel um, and meditation and yoga have definitely like taught me this as well. But that lightness is also grounded in principles and the world around you. So like, it's not, it's, it's not just like this drifting, like, you, you know, you still have a purpose, but you can do it without all this. Again, I talk about those social structures because there's so many, there's so many things around us that like, we just made up that weigh us down mm-hmm. religion being one of them. And I'm not saying that religion is bad in and of itself, but like, if it's not suiting you, it didn't suit me in that way. You know, like it's, it's hindering your spirituality. It's, it's not expanding it. So absolutely. Yeah. So looking ahead, you've gone through a seismic shift mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways in your life. And I would even say, even though you were in the job before a shift at work too, just by mm-hmm. virtue of where we're, we're going as a culture and a community and a society, what are you most excited about looking ahead to the next chapter of your life? You know, that almost feels like a trick question. Because, okay, so, so, so like my, my career is dope. Like my job is great. Um, but one of the questions that I ask myself regularly is who am I without it? Mm. So, so what I'm most excited about for my life is getting to a point of consciousness and spirituality where like I operate as much as possible outside of my ego and self-interest. And, and I get to a point where um, like, I'm not reactive. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not dug in to any one way of life. Like I am in tune with like the, the, the people around me, the energy around me, and the purpose around me. Um, that's what I'm excited for because I, I really believe that, <laughs> I, I don't know, like I think that like I am supposed to, like I feel like everything I go through, I'm supposed to, mm-hmm. but you still have that choice. We talk about free will. You still have that choice to to really understand like if you're going to walk in your purpose or not. So I feel like I'm always getting instruction and I want to get to a point where I'm quiet enough to know 
what that instruction is telling me to do because I'm building on something that my ancestors did and stirred up and I'm working on something that my ancestors are are going to work on or maybe I'm working on in another life I don't know but like I don't think this is all there is mm-hmm. I really don't and and so I, I just I want to get to a point where I'm just like I'm I don't know like if it's a job or if it's if it's children or or if it's growing vegetables like whatever it is like I just I want to make sure that I'm I'm doing whatever I was put here to do for for this time that I've been given. That's good. So before we let you get out of here, because I think that's an amazing note to end on, uh, you mentioned your podcast. So give us a 30 second commercial about the work that you're doing in the in that space. So so my goal through my podcast, it's called the B Suite and it's a play on the C Suite. Um and and the tagline is what Black people talk about at work, but that don't really mean nothing. Really, what I want to do is bring awareness to uh, Black issues for Black people, but not like, oh, did you see the shooting in this city this day? Or, you know, what's, you know, there's the runoff election and like, no, not that, right? But, But what is the work that we as a community, that really hard work, like that self-awareness, that like listening to our ancestors, understanding our history, like what is that work that we need to be doing as a greater community in order in order to get what we really want? So whether that be healing ourselves emotionally uh, regarding our traumas, um, whether whether that be understanding the power of the black dollar, um, or 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 you know something simple. Well, not simple, but like, uh, like leaning into your sexuality, you know, like there's, there's so many different ways that we've, we've been stifled from developing. Um, and I try to use my platform as a way to, to lift us up out of that and beyond the, the hot topic of the day, even though hot topics are fun to talk about. Absolutely. And where can people learn more about your show and you, where can they find you online? Um, you can find me on, I don't people find me on LinkedIn, but I don't really go on there, but you can also, if you want to see like the, the, the more lighthearted side, you can find me at underscore Shatora on Instagram and, uh, follow my podcast at, uh, the B suite on Instagram. Um, and we're on all major streaming platforms at the B suite. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. I, we should just keep going. I'll get some more. I I, and it's so funny. I mean, after all of these conversations, I feel um, I feel this way. Like, I feel like, wow, that was really impactful for me. But particularly when I talk to Black women, right? And it's it's a running gag on the show that it's so hard to get us to come on. Like, I talk to way more men because I just think women just think harder about it. Like, they're like, I need more time to prepare or, you know, what have you. So anytime... Um, I do get to to have these really deep, meaningful interactions. It means a lot. And it, I do also, though, feel like I need like a glass of wine or two after. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, but listen, to our listeners, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this 
conversation, like, share, subscribe, comment, tell somebody not only about our show, but the B-Suite uh, and the work that Shatora is doing. You know, we, we believe around here, the law of universal supply. There's enough of us. There's enough out there in the universe for us all to get it. So go check out her show, support her, subscribe over there as well and tell somebody about it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER. 